In this month's Dhamma podcast, we present Chapter 9, Healing Mind, Health and Vipassana, from the upcoming audiobook, Realizing Change, by Ian Hetherington. Chapter 9, Healing Mind, Health and Vipassana. Adventure, Mountaineering, rock climbing, backpacking, white water rafting, canoeing, caving, abseiling, trucks, buses, cars, motorcycling, cycling, aeroplanes, helicopters, hitchhiking and travelling. I have tried all these for the experience, either in an attempt to conquer fear or to see how close I can get to the line, as I call it, or death, that great dread. In meditation, death comes with every out-breath. How much closer do you want to go? Nat Cohen took his first Vipassana course at Cyrenian House, a drug rehabilitation centre in Perth, Australia, where he was working as a charity collector. Siddhartha Gautama grew up as a prince, surrounded by all the luxuries of the royal household. Though from childhood he preferred a meditative life, his father wanted him to become a great ruler. The king did his best to divert his son's attention to worldly things and to shield him from harsh everyday realities. However, the story goes that in successive outings, the Buddha-to-be encountered a man withered with age, a sick man, a corpse, and a monk. These incidents caused him to reflect on suffering and aspire to finding a way of liberation from it. He decided to abandon palace, family and career in a quest for truth. It was a six-year journey which took him beyond the extremes of indulgence and self-torture to the practice of vipassana and the attainment of full enlightenment as the Buddha. Testing your limits with travel and adventure was once the preserve of eccentric individuals. Now, it seems, everyone's doing it. Sometimes explorers go full circle, like the Buddha, and find themselves. They come to understand that the outside world is pretty much all inside, and that in meditation you meet the unexpurgated version of yourself and learn how to deal with it. Body-Mind what is this well-being that we seek? Good health requires a state of complete balance between body, mind and environment. Dis-ease is what we get when that balance is lost. A combination of physical, mental and social factors makes up the whole person. Each one contributes to our evolving state of health. But of these, mind is most important because it is the central directing force of our entire life and activity. Vipassana is a scientific technique of self-observation within the framework of one's own mind and body, a healing by observation of and participation in the universal laws of nature, Dhamma, that operates upon our thoughts, feelings, judgments and sensations. It aims at the total eradication of mental negativities and conditionings to achieve real peace of mind and to lead a happy, healthy life. Courses in Vipassana are open to people from any background with reasonably good physical and mental health. However, even those who are sick can participate 
provided the person is able to comply with the code of discipline, follow the meditation instructions and practice accordingly, and that the appropriate facilities and support are available at the centre to cater for the individual's needs. Specially adapted Vipassana courses have successfully been given for visually impaired students, patients with leprosy, drug addicts and street children. A wealth of evidence exists about the positive effects of Vipassana in a variety of health disorders, both physical and mental. Such health benefits are byproducts of deep meditation practice, not its main objective. Healing, not disease cure, but the essential healing of human suffering, is the purpose of Vipassana. I was born with scoliosis, a spinal deformity. Most of my childhood years were spent in a body brace with three columns of stainless steel pushing out of my shirt collar, supporting a plaster chin rest and neck hold. I never got used to it and never came to terms with it. I developed my own mechanisms for survival and growth and managed to reach puberty with few apparent difficulties. However, the onset of adolescence was a nightmare that was less easy to shrug off. At an early age, I took to alcohol, drugs, and generally kicked out at the old life of my childhood. By 14, I had been released from wearing the body brace, but had entered another cage of my own creation, one of systematic body abuse. I started to travel and made the link with the Vipassana technique. For about nine years, my life was settled. I worked, I had a relationship, I studied for my degree, and I became increasingly committed to the practice of Vipassana. The initial benefits that I had felt in the first couple of years of my practice, an increased sense of calm, a space separate from the usual world of reaction and turmoil, had moved on. In my practice, without making it in any way a focus, I was starting to unravel nearly 30 years of knots of tension that had built up around my deformity. It was a wonderful organic and natural releasing that was taking place. I started to notice that my own brand of misery was simply that. It was mine. Everyone else around me had their own difficulties, physical, mental, emotional, social, whatever it may be. No one was free of some difficulty. In fact, it seemed that I was relatively free in comparison. As Goenkaji says, it is very easy to remain equanimous towards the grosser realities. It's the less obvious that are harder. My long-developed smiling face attitude to my own deformity was now starting to have a real base of self-compassion and equanimity. My attitude to my own physical condition gradually became very clear. I was more bothered by the way I looked than the way I was. For all of my life, I've been happy and comfortable to accept assistance wherever it is needed and offered, but I had never been able to accept that my body was deformed. This was a fundamental acceptance for me and was essential for me to actually make progress. Again, once I had faced this truth, it became easier to see how my daily practice and my increasing immersion into the Vipassana world was unravelling this most superficial but encaging of neuroses. Dave Lambert has served Vipassana courses in many different parts of the world. Not long ago, things were very different for the healthy, confident young woman working for an export company who loves life and studies and meditates in her free time. 
Back in my teens, eating disorders, bulimia, then anorexia, developed. I made a suicide attempt and underwent psychiatric treatment in a number of hospitals. Alongside the medication for my symptoms, I began abusing other chemical substances and drugs as well as alcohol. By the age of 20, I was severely underweight and malnourished and suffered from extreme hormonal and biochemical imbalance. My menstrual cycle had ceased completely. Despairing at ineffective treatments, mentally and physically exhausted, someone suggested I try Vipassana. Slow but substantial changes followed. It became clear to me that I needed to meditate more. After two years of practice and several courses, I became free of drugs of any kind and experienced great relief in my physical symptoms. Little by little, Dhamma is healing all aspects of my life. Laura Tolva, age 25, sat her first course in Nepal. When I was still very young, my father developed a brain tumour, went blind and subsequently died. Further to this, since early childhood, I've had a stutter and, of course, suffered during my teens from a debilitating lack of self-confidence. Together, these things left me with certain mental scars which continued to affect me in later years. In my early 20s, I went to university to study philosophy and anthropology, and it was during this time that I first attended a course of Vipassana meditation. The technique that was taught offered a way of living in the moment with an attitude that developed a calming balance of mind, which, I found, helped me develop self-esteem and confidence. I realised that to a large degree my speech impediment was compounded by the anxiety and fear of finding myself in situations I would not be able to handle. As I continued the meditation practice, I found this fear and anxiety diminished slowly but steadily, and the stutter lessened as a result. Even though I had tried a number of speech therapies, I found their efficacy shallow and based on simple behaviour modification, without attending to root causes, while Vipassana dealt only with these root causes and left the changes in behaviour to come naturally. Tim Lewis, a builder and architectural designer, lives in Auckland, New Zealand, with his long-time partner. They continue to practice Vipassana together. Unexpectedly, at the age of 43, a meditator doctor had a stroke which left him without speech and the use of his legs. Lying in the ambulance, aware his life was at risk, he began to meditate. Within a few days he was mobile again and speech slowly started to return. Still, normal work was out of the question. In this predicament, who would pay the bills, see the children through college, support elderly parents? He attended a rehabilitation centre for stroke victims, but deep inside doubted he could overcome the disability. However, taking early retirement from his senior post, he continued to meditate with the support of family and friends. Within 12 months, he underwent a remarkable recovery, sat a 30-day retreat and was appointed an assistant teacher of Vipassana. Trauma somehow had produced a change for the better. He returned to work in ophthalmics, his speciality, and money worries evaporated. Temperamentally, the old agitation and irritation was gone. There was a calm about him now, 
and a special appreciation of every opportunity to meditate and to share his blessings in whatever way he could. Dr. Sunny U lives with his family in northern England. Before my first course, I suffered from frequent headaches, significantly high blood pressure and some menopausal symptoms. Since beginning to practice Vipassana meditation, this has changed. I've not taken any analgesics. The headaches have decreased. My blood pressure is normal. The menopausal symptoms which I experienced as troublesome before, insomnia and mood changes, have eased or troubled me less. I find the daily practice of meditation very helpful in coping with the changes I'm going through at present, enabling me to maintain or regain a sense of balance more easily than before and to act with more decisiveness. Having worked as a nurse, midwife, counsellor in the health service for the last 20 years, I'm aware of the need which exists for learning how to cope with stress. Vipassana offers a simple and clear way without unwanted side effects. Krista Wynne Williams is a hospice nurse and therapist in Scotland. For her, meditation has now become a necessity, an attitude of being still and not just informal sitting. An army dentist felt giddy one evening while playing badminton and fell down. He regained consciousness to discover he had developed a severe back and neck condition. Neither conventional painkillers nor complementary therapies brought lasting relief. As time passed by, physical deterioration brought on chronic depression and he became a shadow of his former self. He retired from military service, feeling jealous of those with successful careers and full of self-pity. His physical condition worsened. The atmosphere at home grew increasingly tense and he seriously considered closing down his dental clinic. As a last resort, on the recommendation of a neighbour, he joined a 10-day Vipassana retreat, never thinking he'd be able to complete it. With faith and sheer willpower, he learned to meditate and noticed an unmistakable lessening in the pain which had become his constant companion. It was the beginning of an amazing recovery. He returned home a new person, with a new mind in a new body. No more collars, traction, pegs, painkiller and sleeping pills. He took up brisk walking and gardening. After more than 12 years of agony, he rediscovered his profession and a renewed commitment to caring for his patients. Dr. Lieutenant Colonel M. Mohan Kumar lives and works in Andhra Pradesh, India. Vipassana has been repeatedly shown to help alleviate a range of psychosomatic disorders, such as chronic pain, hypertension, bronchial asthma and peptic ulcers. Mind and body are constantly and inextricably related. It is as a byproduct of the process of mental purification that many of these physical conditions are eased or eliminated. But we should take care not to make disease cure the goal of meditation. In the case of mental health, Vipassana provides a general psychological pattern of positive states of mind rather than a response to any particular problem. From the Vipassana viewpoint, mental disorders result from the accumulation of large quantities of defilements in the mind. 
These show up as various types of craving and aversion. Anyone without a totally pure mind, and who can claim that, has some mental problem or another. The difference between an individual with or without a mental disorder, as defined in psychiatric terms, is only a matter of degree. In the aversion spectrum, such negativities include anger, hatred, ill will, restlessness, anxiety, sadness, fear, guilt, inferiority and jealousy, while typical cravings include passion, ego, greed, arrogance, possessiveness and vanity. Sitting silently in meditation, we learn to accept the deepest truths about ourselves. Working always within the framework of the body, images, thoughts and emotions naturally bubble up as we observe the breath and sensations. Simultaneously, we are aware of our mental state and the direct physical reverberations at the body level. The mind may be in flood at times, but resisting the details and remaining calm and detached, we watch each wave rise and subside. With practice, the entire stockpile of mental impurities is gradually reduced and our potential for fulfilment grows as old conditionings peel away. Working with Vipassana, along with family support and professional help as needed, we can heal ourselves and transform the quality of our lives. When one considers my family history, with its many examples of melancholy and eccentric characters, including many a sleepwalker, it should have come as no surprise that during my adolescence, I too was afflicted with what Winston Churchill described as the black dog depression. And not the I don't feel good today condition, but rather the feeling that you have to carry your face around in a wheelbarrow to stop your jaw from dragging along the ground. One is lame. People tell you to snap out of it because you're physically in good shape. You don't want to snap out, you want to snap back in. It is a depressive phase that led me to the path. I became very ill a year after migrating from Australia to Germany. The thrill of living in a new environment had worn off, and I was homesick and totally disorientated. Thankfully, I had made some very persistent new friends who kept on contacting me, even though I was not well enough to go out and socialise. One of these new friends silently left some information about Vipassana on the cupboard in the hallway. I picked it up, read it, and put it down again. What? Four in the morning? What? No talking? What about the chemist shop that I was swallowing every day in order to get me in and out of bed? Going to the supermarket to buy groceries was a major feat for me, so how can I handle ten days of my own somewhat confusing inner dialogue? To my surprise, I coped very well. But, naturally, completing the course did not put an end to my Western scepticism. I kept looking for a catch, but gave up after a while because there isn't one. It is so simple, pure and logical. Observe. Remain equanimous. Everything passes. Even depression. So why fret? And if you are fretting, observe the fretting. Vipassana takeaway, integrating this wisdom and practice day to day, is not so simple. I really have to work at this and look to others for support and encouragement, but I'm no longer afraid when the black dog barks and then slinks into the distance. 
Linda Müller took her course at Damageha, the German meditation center near Karlsruhe. A survey of New Zealand Vipassana students was undertaken in 1994. Students who'd attended one or more 10-day courses were asked to answer a questionnaire. The completed questionnaires were analysed to examine the impact of the meditation practice over time on many aspects of people's lives. All categories of personal well-being, including physical health, stress reduction, sense of integrity, motivation, relationships and overall happiness, showed significant improvements. Students' ability to cope with adversity had markedly increased. Large decreases in the use of alcohol and drugs were recorded. Independent report by David Hodgson, statistical consultant, commissioned by the Vipassana Foundation Charitable Trust, New Zealand. I can't remember how young I was when I first started wishing that I was dead. Most people have wished that at some point in their lives, but in my family, suicide is almost a tradition. Many of my relatives have died that way, and almost everyone in my immediate family has attempted suicide. Mental imbalance also runs in my family, which is no wonder with self-destruction abounding as it does. So to me, it was natural not only to be depressed all the time, but to consider suicide as a viable way out. In my mid-twenties, I finally actually attempted to end my life. I remember how unnatural it seemed, how biologically unsound. I was supposed to be doing my utmost to survive, and here I was, trying to slice away at the wrists of my very own body in order to murder it. It was a very bizarre experience, and I'm awfully glad it hurt so much that I passed out and didn't succeed. Nevertheless, In spite of the clear image I had that night of how intrinsically wrong it was to put an end to myself, I still had no positive solution. If anything, it just seemed disappointing that it was so difficult to die. So I still held suicide as an option for when things got really bad again. Then I discovered Vipassana meditation. An aunt of mine was a practitioner and kept me aware of the sittings without in the least pushing me to go. Finally, one summer, I got the urge to try it out. I drove up to Mendocino in California on my own and embarked upon this exploration of truth which would cause me to never again turn to death as a solution to life's problems. Vipassana did indeed turn out to be my saviour. I worked very hard those ten days and what I gained turned my head around completely. I found out the truth about life, about my life and most of all about real happiness. Not fleeting, situational happiness, but real happiness, the happiness that is our inheritance as living beings. I learned about it, and I experienced it firsthand. I had often read about meditation and all the wonderful effects it can have, and I believed in it implicitly, but only through sitting for ten whole days myself was I able to know these things firsthand, and only through knowing them firsthand was I able to change my life around. I still suffer from depression sometimes. I think it's a genetic thing that I just have to live with, but I no longer look to death as my escape. And I don't search out pharmaceutical solutions, as most psychiatrists would have me do. In fact, I never go to psychiatrists or therapists anymore. I practice Vipassana meditation instead. And, true confession, 
I'm not always the most regular or disciplined practitioner, but I know it's there, and I remember what it taught me about the joy that abides in every atom of my being, and the beings of everyone and everything else, and it makes me feel a sense of calm and unity that is not just a New Age positive affirmations pep talk, but rather the real thing. I know the truth now, viscerally, and nothing will ever get in the way of that knowledge. I've never even considered suicide since I first experienced Vipassana meditation 16 years ago, not even once. And with my track record, that's a miracle in itself. Susan Craig Winsberg is a musician, a recording artist and composer in the USA. Jagdish Kela, a 20-year-old postgraduate student in Mumbai, had been carrying a problem since being in high school four years earlier. His mind was obsessed with all kinds of thoughts and fantasies, mostly about dirt, sex and death. He had become compulsive about washing and touching and was hardly able to go to classes. At times he felt the urge to hurt people or break things. Agitation overwhelmed him and he would cry. Antidepressant and other drugs prescribed by psychiatrists were only marginally effective. After some prior preparation, he was able to take a Vipassana retreat. A further two courses followed. Within 14 months, he was admitted to an engineering college, free of medication and feeling very much better. In his own words, Earlier I tackled my inner thoughts wrongly by thinking about them or trying to solve them. Both would increase my anxiety. Suppressing my impulses only led to more restlessness. I kept tying new knots every moment in the process. The fundamental change with Vipassana is that now I have learned how to leave these thoughts alone, whatever their content may be. And working with my sensations, I realise that all those disturbing thoughts come from the depths to the surface of my mind to go out, provided I watch them without reacting. Now I realise how I had become a slave of my own mind. During the last 15 years, my external living conditions more than once presented good occasions for sinking down in despair or for deep mental growth in the face of existential problems. The death of my father 13 years ago became a deep, dumber experience for me. I was not, as I'd always been fearing in regard to a situation like this, paralysed by indescribable sorrow and sadness, but instead felt nothing but love and gratefulness. I got a glimpse into what our senses are unable to grasp and learned to develop faith in the course of events, whatever direction life might lead me. After this, I had several miscarriages. They taught me to let go of deep-lying desires. Then about six years ago, my mother's physical weakness and fast mental decline made it necessary to make arrangements for regular nursing and care for her, a nightmare for most people. The common task of caring for my mother, however, led to deep understanding and love between my sisters and myself, which had never been there before. Finally, five years ago, doctors diagnosed a cancerous disease in me, which cannot be cured. Since then, I'm more than ever aware that my lifetime is very valuable, and I often feel deep gratitude being able to enjoy living in the present moment, with body and mind still intact this present moment to which I can always return with the help of Vipassana.
when Hilda Becker lives with her meditator partner in Germany. Tackling Addiction Of all the problems currently confronting humankind, drug addiction or chemical dependency is one of the most widespread and serious. Respecting no barriers of country or class, it undermines individual health, warps relationships, torments families, stunts the economy, fosters crime and destroys peace in the community. Substance abuse is a complex disorder, which in the case of addicts means an over-dependence that has become habitual, obsessive and compulsive, governing every aspect of the individual's life, physical, emotional, social and mental. Joe, an ex-addict from Australia, illustrates from his own experience. Addiction basically means escapism, escape from reality. You use insanity, the human insanity, escapism. With a drug addict, someone's used the vehicle of drugs to escape, and it is a very, very powerful vehicle, much more powerful than just the unaided fantasy for the average human being, getting into dreams, workaholism, or TV. The drug motivation, the drug use, is much more powerful than anything else. When I use it, because it's so powerful, it takes the escapism to a life-threatening degree, whereas other motivators, like living for money, power, prestige, don't threaten your life. What causes this driven behaviour, despite the direst consequences? Someone may start using drugs for a number of reasons, but eventually drug use becomes a reaction to uncomfortable body sensations, which result from the constant interconnection between mind and body, and the thoughts which accompany these interactions. One chases pleasant feelings to displace the unpleasant. A person doesn't get addicted to anything out there, or to some inherent quality of the drug itself. It just seems that way. People get addicted to their own sensations of the body. By taking a drug, a certain kind of biochemical process starts in the body, and one feels a type of sensation which one starts liking. One develops a craving for it, then a habit, and finally gets addicted to the sensation. Addiction feeds on itself. One wants to enjoy that sensation again and again. This is what happens in all types of addiction, not only with drugs and alcohol. The addiction is actually to one's own body sensations. Vipassana can remove the roots of addiction, craving and aversion, which other methods of treatment scarcely touch. The technique works directly with sensations which are continuously in contact with the deepest level of the mind. Through meditation practice, drug addicts can learn to face suppressed feelings, along with unpleasant sensations that start to rise out of their unconscious. Gradually, the mind becomes more balanced, gaining strength and understanding. Little by little, they see reality as it is, and past habit patterns are broken. However, progress requires a strong will on the part of the individual, both to come out of addiction and to work towards this goal by observing themselves at the level of sensations. Professional support also plays an important role in their recovery. Start again an addiction therapy centre in Zurich, Switzerland, uses meditation as a key element in drug rehabilitation. The city is well known for its heavy drug scene, but Start Again 
is a completely new kind of addiction clinic. Modern therapy methods from the West, including one-to-one counselling, systemic couple or family therapy, and self-help with Narcotics Anonymous, are combined with ancient techniques of mental development from the East. It is one of the few rehabilitation centres for addicts that does not use drug therapy. Daily practice of anapana meditation to calm and concentrate the mind is essential. Once their situation has stabilised, clients may request to take a 10-day vipassana retreat to deepen the healing process. In each such case, careful attention is given to preparing the individual for the course and to their aftercare. Around 60% of those who stay the full length of the 12-month programme successfully reintegrate themselves socially and at work and have not used hard drugs for more than a year since leaving Start Again. In the war with addiction, this is the front line. One client on the programme describes in a poem how mindfulness of breathing brings a rare sense of wholeness and a vision of recovery. It feels really nice to simply breathe, to feel, to be, and nature cleans my rooms almost on its own. If I could only stick to it, turn back, and do what I really want. Gaining the motivation to heal themselves is important for progress. Another client was able to work as the clinic's night watchman, a responsibility which helped him through hard times. The first time I learned about Anapana was four and a half years ago. It was not at all a technique of meditation and spirituality as I expected it to be. I was hoping that I would feel light and free, but my hopes, as well as my urge to seek refuge in a world of illusion, as I did when I took drugs, were dashed. The Anapana technique turned out to be hard work, As part of the rehabilitation program, start again, I practiced Anapana twice a day. After three months, I had an eight-month-long relapse, after which I decided to take part in start again once more. At that point, I began to see more clearly that my existence did not only consist of pleasant experiences. Intellectually, I began to understand that I can find an inner distance to my emotions through meditation, and that I do not have to react blindly to cravings and aversions. I learned to understand that I am the person responsible for my own life. I also began to see just how much I acted out of self-interest. After four months of Anapana, I did my first 10-day Vipassana course, and a second one after another half year. Meditation, then, to me, means to get in contact with myself and my feelings without getting tangled up in them, to experience my changes, to be more honest with myself, and therefore with other people as well. I try to live up to the standards of Vipassana in my daily life. Again and again I try to take a step back from my feelings and the realities which I've constructed in my mind. Sometimes I manage quite well, and as a result don't have to react in such a blind and self-destructive manner anymore, because I can observe and feel calm in the situation. What I realise more and more is that I need to confront the world around me and that I can no longer just sit there and wait. Vipassana is not a world of illusion in which I can seek refuge. It helps me have a good look at my life. By continuing regular meditation, I find it more and more difficult to escape reality 
and flee to a world of illusions. Not that meditation alone can reform an addict. Skilled professional help with rehabilitation, the love of friends and family, a dogged personality, all play their part. Nick, a Start Again graduate, explains. Without a doubt, Vipassana meditation has contributed to my total abstinence from drugs, which I've been able to maintain for five years. My understanding of Vipassana is to use it as a practical tool and a technique. I do not associate it with belief or religion. By observing my body and my feelings, I experience the relativity, the uniqueness, the transitoriness and the different dimensions of myself, fresher and clearer each time. It seems that one of the specific results of meditation is overcoming the feeling of desire and allowing the spirit to make decisions free from constraint. Letting go. Of all the changes awaiting us, death is the greatest. Since birth, this bookend has infused our existence with meaning, but mostly we avoid looking directly at that situation when I cease to be. When the body gives way and the mind goes out, when every possession is left behind and every desire is swept aside. Perhaps tomorrow, or in thirty years, we will die. Are we ready? Whenever it comes, can we rise to the occasion, meeting our end consciously and harmoniously with all the wisdom of a lifetime? Nothing is more natural than dying, we know, just part of an ageless cycle. Yet how easy to lose perspective, when someone dear passes away, or we miss something precious. Grief reminds us of our own mortality. I am also not forever. Practicing Vipassana, we engage in an ongoing process of learning. Body and mind rise and pass with each breath and every sensation. Repeatedly probing this truth within ourselves, we begin to accept it. Impermanence as felt experience dissolves the tendency to cling to what is ours. Kindness and giving displace self-centeredness. Living a full and wholesome life, we prepare to make a good death. An experienced meditator, Harsh Jyoti, found out in July 1992 that he had lung cancer and died in January 1993. Every time he had a setback, which happened quite often, From the first diagnosis and during his treatment, Vipassana helped him to restore his balance of mind. His son was able to observe him closely during the final period of his life. I think Dhamma was protecting him. I think that was a very profound effect that we could see, even in the last stages. Whenever we said, do you want to meditate? He would just nod his head, so all of us would sit round him and try to send metta for 20 or 30 minutes. At one time he was fighting the disease, hopeful, as we all were, that he would get a couple more years, then a couple more months, a couple more weeks. But at some point, during that last hospital visit, it probably just dawned on him that now he didn't have too much time, and he just accepted that, and along with it the attachment to this life. And I think 
probably because of that, his death was so smooth and so peaceful, because there was no fighting, no struggle, nothing. My father suffered from high blood pressure. It started out about 150 to 90, then 120 to 80, then down to 110 to 70, then to 90 to 60, and all the while you could see his face. We have some photographs, very peaceful, sleeping happily. My brother had come back for our father's last few hours and we were watching him, just breathing, breathing. And all of a sudden, it looked as though there was a small flicker. And that was it. It felt so peaceful. And although that was an occasion of great sorrow for us, seeing how peacefully he passed away, that gave us so much strength and consolation. Even my mother, who was so close to him, and normally a very emotional person, even she was in control of herself at that moment. It was like putting water in a saucer and letting it evaporate. He passed away without a ripple. This, I feel, is how Dhamma protects. Dhamma doesn't protect us by not making us fall sick. All of us have to fall sick. It doesn't protect us by not making us die, because all of us have to die. But whenever that happens, when you fall sick or die, you do it so peacefully and calmly. I was almost 70 when I took my first Vipassana course, together with Poor, my husband, who had Parkinson's disease. When we arrived home, everyone could see the change. My husband looked much better and his speech had improved. For me, the course marked a turning point. Having searched for so long, I knew that finally I'd found my way of living. The following year, the two of us went on holiday to Gambia, where we enjoyed the sun and sea. Then one day, while playing in the shallows, we were suddenly parted by a huge wave and an unusually strong underwater current, which caught Paul and dragged him away. Even with the greatest effort, it took too long to reach him. felt like an eternity before I finally succeeded and got him in to where I could stand. Too late. He had drowned. Finally, people saw us and came to help. A young German gave Poole first aid, but with such force that he broke two ribs and his spleen was punctured. An ambulance arrived and we were taken to a hospital where they extracted the liquid from his lungs. They told me there was no chance he would survive. We were then moved to a private hospital and he was immediately placed in intensive care. What a night, with those gloomy prospects. When I asked Paul if he knew what had happened, he answered, I drowned. It was wonderful to be dead. I hovered, gliding so happily. But as I could see you struggling with me below, I wanted to come down and help you. Whatever might happen later, this was a loving way to take leave rather than death by drowning. Together we meditated and were lucky the bleeding stopped by itself. However, it took five long weeks before we were flown back to Denmark and he was admitted to hospital for checkups and rehabilitation. The doctors recommended he go to a specialised nursing facility, but my daughter and I decided to keep and nurse him at home. Six months after the accident, I travelled to the USA, first to visit family, 
and then to take another much-needed Vipassana retreat. My concentration during the course was so strong that I got a very strange feeling of being dissolved in millions of small bubbles that raced around and through me. This experience helped me immensely two years later when I was able to tell both my husband and my two only brothers how important it was to be at ease and peaceful at the moment of death. The three of them passed away in the same week, just before Christmas 1995. Despite this, because of my meditation, I remained calm and balanced. I was able to support the family and help us all to begin an active new life. Muge Hufeld lives in Denmark and was one of the organisers of the first Vipassana courses in that country. Anne first met Graham Gamby while travelling in India in the late 1970s. Meditation wasn't at all on her agenda then, and he encouraged her to sit in Vipassana course. Sensing she was onto something good, Anne continued to meditate and serve at Damagiri before heading off to Japan for work. Two years later, she returned to the Igapuri Centre and met Graham again when they served on the same course together. Within a couple of months, much to her astonishment, they were married. She and Graham returned to Australia, where he worked as an investigative journalist and took unpaid leave to conduct Vipassana courses as a newly appointed assistant teacher. Meditating and working together, the storms of the early days gave way to a deep sense of caring and togetherness. Like a new pair of shoes continually worn, the relationship in time became very comfortable. On one particular ten-day course we were conducting together, I noticed that Graham, my husband at that time, was uncharacteristically missing words and slowing his speech. I became very concerned for his health and we made an appointment to see a neurologist the day the course ended. CT scans were taken of the brain, and while waiting for the results, we went for an enjoyable lunch. Oh, it's nothing. Nothing to worry about, I remember saying as we handed the folder to the neurologist. Without a word, he removed the scans and placed them on the display panel. The photos showed a brain tumour, which seemed at least 50% of the left hemisphere, and on top of the tumour was a very large cyst. I was numb and uncomprehending. Yes, we would cancel our air tickets to New Zealand. Yes, we could get Graham directly into hospital that afternoon. The numbness turned to tears as I phoned to arrange accommodation in Sydney with dear friends. Graham had to take the telephone receiver as I wasn't making any sense and make the arrangements himself. He was calm and collected. While getting Graham into hospital and making sure he was comfortable, I somehow managed outwardly to be cheerful, but as soon as I left his company I was back in tears again. That night as I meditated, a deep sense of peace arose, and it was to stay with me throughout Graham's ordeal. It was not the peace that comes through rationalisation or intellectualization. It was just something that kicked in. Within two days, Graham was under the operating knife. They were not able to remove all the tumour. The prognosis was not good. The neurosurgeon told Graham that due to the nature of the tumour, an astrocytoma, he had maximum five years to live, and by the end of it, mentally, he would be a vegetable. 
Such news was devastating, yet he took it in his stride. I once heard him say to visitors, How can I be attached to this body and this mind when it's so constantly changing? There is nothing to hold on to. Workmates, friends, those who he knew through meditation would come and visit him. As one colleague said, I came expecting to see a body on the bed and to console him. Instead, I ended up telling him all about my problems and forgot about his. The days passed, and I'm grateful to have spent every one of them with him. He was discharged from hospital, but within a week or so was back again. He was having difficulty with his legs. They had become so tender, and he could not walk far. It was June 27th, six weeks since the tumour was diagnosed, and I think both of us knew that this was to be the day he'd die. There would be no popping out of the hospital to run errands. We had a lovely day together, and that night as I said goodbye, I felt I couldn't get close enough to him. I hopped up onto the side of the bed and began to put lipstick on. He asked why, and I said it was because I wanted to look good for him. He then proceeded to say the nicest things about what a wonderful wife I had been and how he felt. I was happy, and he was happy. We said goodbye. That night, after dinner, I was enjoying the last sip of hot chocolate. I took a breath, and at that moment experienced such a deep sense of absolute peace and tranquility. The phone rang. It was a junior nurse calling. Could I come in quickly? Graham was having a heart attack. It was clear there was no need to hurry. Graham was gone. I travelled to the hospital. It was late on Friday night. The neon light shone and people were out strolling, window shopping, eating. A strong sense of fear and vulnerability arose within. Such a casual picture of life was not to be trusted. What seemed so real, so permanent, was nothing more than an illusion. We were all walking on very thin ice, blind to the knowledge that we could fall through at any given moment. The journey continued. We arrived at the hospital. We proceeded upstairs to where the two of us had exchanged words only hours before. On entering the room alone, I was immediately struck by the vibrancy of the atmosphere. Graham's body lay on the bed. It was very clear there was no one there. It looked like a cast-off coat that could no longer serve its owner. That was all that remained of the person with whom I'd just spent four very special years of my life. What a wonderful life he had lived. I received letters from people who knew him in the past. Each one recounted something that Graham had done to help them in their life. I heard from others about when he was travelling in India, how he'd give his last rupee to someone who needed it, how he used to feed the street children with money he received from a small investment he had. And then when I saw how much he had loved and helped others in the time we had together, it became very clear that all the wonderful good deeds he had done in his life They had all gone with him. There were no tears. How could there be tears? The relationship had gone full circle. There was nothing left unresolved or unsaid. Yes, it had been the hardest thing I have done in my life, but the fruits were so great and so numerous. I was truly fortunate to have shared my life briefly with such a human being. The funeral was held. The pews were full and people lined the walls. They came from all persuasions, from all walks of life, each with his or her own personal reason for being there. 
It was strange to return home, to see his clothes just as he had left them, and to know that there was no one there to claim ownership. It is now twenty years since I sat my first course in Vipassana. So much has changed, and so many experiences, some very pleasant, some very painful, have come and gone. Yet the practice of Vipassana has endured. Not only has it endured, it has provided great sustenance and shelter, and above all, a sense of contentment and clarity, not bound by the vicissitudes of life. Anne Donman remarried in 1991 and is a working mother with two children. Everything is changing. In a constant ripple of waves, of wind passing by. Now is the time to be free from my self. Not hoarding what I have, but tasting. Letting go, not pushing away, but letting go on the sweet wind. Nature regularly features in Sachiko Oi's poems. She sat her first retreat at Dharmabanu, Japan, in 1998. Find this and many more podcasts at Pariyati, a non-profit publisher who offers written, audio, and video content and whose mission is to enrich the world by disseminating the words of the Buddha, providing sustenance for the seeker's journey, and illuminating the meditator's path. For more information, please go to www.pariyatti.org. That's pariyati.org. For more information about Vipassana meditation, please visit www.dhamma.org. That's dhamma.org.